And I want to encourage you as you open up your Bibles, Bible you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew, maybe the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, open up to the book of Job. The book of Job. Someone said to me, really, you're going to go from sex to suffering. That's what's there. Um, you know, in all seriousness, and again, even in light of what I said when we were during the announcement part about what's happening right now, the reality is there's almost nothing more certain in life than suffering, isn't there? It can show up anytime, anywhere, with anybody. Suffering is, can be so pervasive, it can touch our lives at four different levels. It can hit us physically, it can hit us emotionally, it can hit us spiritually, even relationally. And the thing is, sometimes all of those overlap as well, which just intensifies things. Suffering comes in all sizes and varieties, big and small. Some suffering lasts a short time and other sufferings never quit. We all encounter it. We all experience it eventually. Maybe it's a terrible accident. Maybe it's an unexpected loss. Perhaps it's just the absence of someone who we've relied upon for a long time, a lifetime. Whenever it comes, however it comes, we always find ourselves asking the same question, don't we? Why? Why? And this morning, as we turn to the final book in the wisdom section of the library, as we've been doing that all summer, this is our final book to look at in that wisdom section, the book of Job. The book of Job, if you're not familiar with it, is where we wrestle with the question of why. The why of suffering. As I mentioned, you know, coming right off of Song of Songs, this is another book where it really merits some, some things I need to say at the outset to kind of lay a foundation because if you haven't read this book, you probably have heard of it and this book is a lightning rod for many, many people and I really want to kind of lay a foundation, put a context here that will just be not, for the next couple of weeks as we go through this book. So two things I just kind of want to lay out for you in terms of expectation, how to orient yourself to where we're going to go. The book of Job, like many other books and parts of the Bible, is a story but it's a unique story. In fact, it's often been said that the book of Job isn't written from the perspective of an armchair. It's rather written from the perspective of the wheelchair, from the perspective of the suffering. Job gives voice to those who are hurting. It, there is powerful meaning expression of everything we as human beings have ever felt when we've been mistreated by life in this book. And this story, as you're going to see, raises questions for us. It raises questions, lots of them, but it also, in how this story plays out, refuses to let us rush ahead to the end for the answers. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert that we often associate the question, why do bad things happen to good people, with this book, but the spoiler alert is this, is Job will not answer that question. Other answers are given, and there's, there are answers, these answers that are given are, are in response to questions maybe we haven't even thought about. And so in order for us to appreciate and learn from both the answers that are given and the questions maybe we didn't even think about, we have to take this story as it comes to us. We have to be careful to not get ahead. We have to sit with Job in each moment, absorbing each part in order to appreciate the whole. And so more than in any other sermon series, I am encouraging you not to hear just one message, but to hear them all. 
And if you're not normally here, you're going to be out of town more than any other time. I'm encouraging you to check the podcast, listen, watch it on Vimeo, because if you just get this series in pieces, it's going to give you a very distorted understanding of what this book has to say to us. So that's first. Second, and related to this, the book of Job, you're going to find out very quickly, doesn't lend itself much to practical application. And I know for many of us, that's many, oftentimes the part of the sermon we're waiting for. Tell me what to do. What, what's the takeaway? And I, I won't debate right now the merits of that, just that approach in general to the Bible. But I will say this, the, jo- stove of jo- the story of Job isn't going to tell us what to do. Here's the answer. Go make it happen. This is a book that asks big questions, and in wrestling with them, Job isn't going to tell us so much how to be as it is going to teach us how to see. It's going to challenge us to stop and think about how we see the world, how we see God, and how we see each other. Therefore, what you're going to find is what's going to be offered each week are not going to be from me principles or platitudes to live by. I have no principles or platitudes to live by from this book. Rather, what I'm going to offer you, and they're going to be from my study, but also from my own personal reflections of things to mull over, things to talk about, things that can and will shape how we engage our lives and our life together. So with all of that being said, let's begin. And we're going to read the whole of the first chapter, so if you have your Bibles open, let me introduce us to the book of Job. In the land of Uz, where there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and 
I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whew. The book begins by introducing us to a man called Job. A man of the East, Job is not an Israelite. He is most likely an Edomite, a descendant not of Jacob, but of Esau. Probably this is taking place during the time of the patriarchs. We learn two important things about Job. We learn that he is righteous, and we learn that he is rich. Job is righteous. He is blameless and upright. This doesn't mean Job is perfect or sinless because we see Job offering sacrifices. We can intuit this. No, Job fears God. That means he respects. We've seen that word fear used again in the wisdom books. He respects, he trusts God, and he turns away from evil. This means that Job is proactive, if you will, not reactive in honoring God and doing right by others. And we see a small example of this in how Job intercedes for his family like a priest by offering sacrifices and atoning for each of them. Notice, not because they sinned, but just because they might. Job is righteous. And Job is also, we're told, rich. He has seven, done, seven sons. Seven is a number of completeness in the Bible. You can't ask for better than that. Seven sons and three daughters. Seven plus three, ten. Another number of completeness. Abundant livestock. Numerous servants at his beck and call. Job is so rich, he not only lives in a house himself, all his children have houses of their own. Job is so rich, he can afford to throw a big party for each of his children on their birthday and then provide a costly offering, burnt offering for each of them. And again, I don't know if you caught this, but after everyone's birthday, Job doesn't just have a costly burnt offering for the birthday boy or girl. Job does a costly burnt offering for every single one of his children. He is immensely wealthy. And he's a pillar, not just of his community, but of the region. He's well-known, much-loved. Job is, we might say, living the dream. He is, and I don't know if you caught this in the description of Job here, but Job is the proverbial picture of the wise and blessed man. And when I say proverbial, I mean that literally. If you go back to when we looked at Proverbs, and Proverbs describes the wise and blessed man, it is the very description of Job. That's our introduction to Job. And then we jump scenes quickly. We jump from here on earth to a glimpse of the heavenly realms. And the sons of God, in other words, the angels, present themselves before God. Job is, the Lord is having a council meeting, a cabinet meeting, and in comes Satan. Interestingly, though, in this cabinet meeting, it is not Satan who starts the conversation. It is God who first calls attention to Job, who specifically points him out, brags about him. 
And don't miss this. First, we heard it from the narrator of the story, and now we hear it straight out of the mouth of God. Job is blameless and upright. This is something you want to bookmark and hold on to, because for everything else that follows, all the places we're going to go, you need to hear this. What's going to happen to Job has nothing to do with his lack of righteousness. It's made crystal clear from the start, both from the writer of this story and from the mouth of God, Job is a just man, a good man, a holy man. Job, in other words, isn't going to suffer because he's done something wrong. And also notice that the adversary, Satan, doesn't dispute this about Job. He doesn't dispute this truth about Job, but he does make an accusation. He accuses Job of what I'll call mercenary worship. Does Job fear God for nothing? It's a rhetorical question for the accuser. Job is virtuous and upright for his own benefit, not yours. Look at all that property and wealth he has. Worshiping you, well, that's part of Job's business plan, man. That's his long-term growth strategy. He's just making payments on his divine insurance policy, covering his bases. Job doesn't love you, Lord. He loves himself. He only loves you for your money. Job doesn't serve you, Lord. He serves himself. He only serves you because of all the stuff you give him. Job is using you, Lord. You are a means to an end. Stop blessing him. Take it all away. Make things unprofitable for him. Then you'll see. He'll surely curse you to your face. Most of us If we know the book of Job at all, we know the first two chapters and maybe the end. We don't know anything else. And as a result, we have a a not full understanding of this book. Real important we read between the lines here. This is not really an attack on Job. This is an accusation against God. The accusation is the Lord's whole premise, this relationship he has with humanity is a sham. If God makes it a policy to bring prosperity as a reward for righteousness, then true righteousness isn't present because people are acting righteously in order to gain the blessing. The Lord isn't creating freely loving servants. He's creating toadies. Job, as we've already heard, is one of the best servants of the king of kings. However, if Job can be bought, if Job simply worships for a price, If Job's only in it for what's in it for him, then the emperor has no clothes. The Lord has failed to get the desire of his his heart, what he created humanity for. And what did God create us for? To be in willing, joyful, freely loving relationship with him. The accusation then is that Job, if he fails, proves that a relationship with God is impossible because we'll always love the gifts more than the giver. And so God puts Job to the test. God believes in his relationship with Job. The Lord gives Satan permission to deprive him of everything he owns, everything around him. But Job himself, his physical person, is not to be harmed. And let's just pause for a second and acknowledge the obvious, the elephant in the room. Some are bothered by this picture of God making a wager with Satan. But let's be clear about something. In case it didn't occur to you, in case you haven't thought about this, Job is wisdom literature. This book is not in the historical section of the Bible. In other words, this is not a historical account. These are true events explaining comprehensively God's working of heaven and the angels. 
This is a story that is not intended to give us theology about the spiritual realms. This is a story intended to provoke thought and reveal wisdom, just like the other books we've seen in this section. It's intended to provoke reflection and insight into our understanding of life and our relationship with God and with each other. It is not claiming, per se, to be representing the nature of God. God is a character. And this is a prologue also. Think about this. This is a setup. It's getting us ready to wrestle with the bigger questions that are still to come. If you want to take this as a reality, if you really think this is, this is, this is it, this is how it works, then the, the truth is you really don't need to read, read the rest of the book. Because if the purpose of the book of Job is to answer our question, why? Well, we already have the answer, don't we, in the first two chapters. The answer to why is God has a gambling problem. He likes to make bets on his people. I mean, if that, that then we don't need to, why would we want to read anything? That's horrible enough in and of itself. Why do we want to read anything else? Like I said, we have to take the parts in order to appreciate the whole. This is a setup for us to engage the deeper questions that Job wants to provoke. Related to this, I also want to point out, because sometimes from this story, a way of sort of not dealing with the questions or a way of trying to figure things out, sometimes people will blame the problem of evil and suffering on Satan. And that means i got to point out something else that we can't miss here, something that even though I'm going to point it out is going to raise other questions for us. That's okay. It can be hard, but that's okay. When we want to say, well, the problem of evil and suffering is on Satan, understand there's no real wager here. This is, Job is not presenting for us a dualistic view of the world where there are two equal and opposing forces of good and evil, and it's anyone's guess to which side will win. The Bible as a whole presents no such worldview, and neither does the book of Job. God is completely in charge. Satan can do nothing without God's say-so. Therefore, Satan, for all his accusations, is far from threatening God's sovereignty. The adversary is, in fact, God's servant and agent. He's a minor player, an incidental character, who after chapter 2 is never mentioned again and retreats to being behind the scenes. Like I said, this raises all kinds of other questions, but also notice something else at this point in the story. The story does not depict the Lord himself as inflicting all these, these disasters on Job. That's a little observation with big implications. While nothing happens, in other words, outside of God's control, God does not will evil things. Evil and suffering, and this is an important thing, evil and suffering are not God's original intent for creation, but evil and suffering are a result of being in relationship with us. Hear that. Evil and suffering are not part of God's original intent for creation, but evil and suffering are a result of being in relationship with us. Therefore, being in relationship with us, God works within those parameters. God works through the iniquity of this world, but that doesn't mean that God causes or wills evil. Back to our story. With four successive blows, Job loses everything he was ever given by God. In just one day, with the out-of-breath arrival of each of his servants, Job's world is turned upside down. He goes from riches to rags in less than 24 hours. From the four corners of the earth, destruction comes upon Job. Both human and natural disasters despoil him. The Sabaeans from the south, the fire of God from the west, the Chaldeans from the north, the strong wind blowing from the east. Each time we have that haunting refrain echoing in his ear and ours, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Only one messenger is spared to let Job know he's lost everything. First his wealth, and then tragically his children. Right from the get-go, you see that Job is one of those stories that 
pulls you in. You can't, you cannot remain distant from this story. You get pulled into this story and you, you're suddenly thrust into asking yourself, how would you react? What would we do next? And if you were reading along with me, let's be honest, Job's response is surprising. He doesn't curse. He resigns himself to God and he worships. Joseph, Job responds to the loss of all he holds dear by praising the one who gave him those gifts. Stripped of all that seemingly gave his life meaning, Job clings to the God who gave him life in the first place. And this is brought out in his simple words in verse 21 when Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Wow. I really wish the story ended there. But it's not over yet. It's not over yet. The opening salvo that's been answered by Job takes the story back into heaven. Once again, we're in this divine council meeting, cabinet meeting. The Lord is there, Satan's back, and the Lord once again points to Job and the integrity of his faith. Did you see that? Did you see that? But the accuser will have none of it. Look, God, look, look. We've danced around the edges with Job here. He's lost a lot, sure, but when are we going to get serious here? There's a difference between what a person has and what a person is. Technically, he's still untouched. He's still got his health, and in the end, that's all we've got anyway, am I right? Let me get under his skin. Let me get under his skin. Let him feel it where it hurts, and your golden boy will change his tune. Let me get under his skin, and then he'll curse you to, to your face to save his skin. You watch, you see. And once again, the Lord allows the adversary not to kill, but to inflict Job with physical suffering. Job suddenly breaks out with a terrible skin disease. His entire body becomes covered in boils, just like the ones in one of those plagues that brought down Egypt. His, the itching is maddening. The pain so intense, Job can't help but scratch with a broken shard of pottery and thus worsen and spread the infection that festers his flesh from top to bottom, that agonizes him not just in body, but mind and soul. Broken, grieving, wasting away, Job finds shelter. Don't miss this in chapter two. By sitting on the ash heap, the city dump, where the garbage gets taken, because that's how Job feels like garbage. It's the same place outside the city gate that Jesus will later use to offer us the best picture of hell, because that's where Job is right now, hell on earth. But at least he's still got his marriage, right? His wife. In sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer, right? Chapter 2, no, Job, Job doesn't even have that. Not even his wife is with him. In a cameo role in chapter 2, Job's wife is not pushing those vows that I mentioned. She's pushing the last part. You know that until death do we part section? She's pushing the until death do we part as she cajoles her, cajoles her husband to just curse God and die. Notice, she doesn't deny his innocence. That's important. She doesn't deny his innocence. She just berates him for persisting in it. Curse God, who's obviously cursing you, and then he'll finish the job for you. Again, 
what would you do? What would we say in this moment? At this point, Job's response once again is stunning. He refuses to curse. He rebukes his wife, yes, but even his rebuke of his wife, if you read it in chapter 2, is measured and careful. It, dare we say it's even loving. He, notice he doesn't call her a fool. Instead, he says she's speaking like one of the foolish women. In other words, this is foolish talk. In just 31 verses, even though his life has gone from having it all to being reduced to next to nothing, Job continues to hold on to his integrity. Personally afflicted, despite all his pain and loss, Job remains complete and whole in his relationship with God. At the loss of his possessions, Job doesn't curse. At the loss of his children, he doesn't curse. At the loss of his health, he doesn't curse. At the suggestion of his wife, he doesn't curse. Job holds on to all he has left. The only one he has left, God. I told you this story comes in parts. And this is where we stop for today. Job holds on to all he has left. The one thing he has left, God. But the question is, for how long? The earthquake may be over here in chapters 1 and 2, but as we're going to see, the aftershocks are coming. The real test is, in fact, about to begin. As three figures come together from different parts of the region, a new wrinkle in the story is about to appear. The intention of these three men is to comfort their friend, to encourage and support Job in his time of need. But if you've ever read this book before, as you read it this week, you're going to see that Job, in his own personal turmoil and inner dialogue, has enough trouble of his own holding on to the Lord. And with friends like these, it's not going to get any easier. But that's next week. For today, I think we've had enough. I've had enough. Here is what we're left to reflect upon, to chew on, to ask ourselves from this part of the story. And it's really the question we've been dancing around the whole time. And it's the question of motive. Do we serve God for nothing? Do we serve God for nothing? Or to say it another way, why do we love and serve God? What motivates your relationship with the Lord and mine? These are challenging questions, aren't they? Why do we worship God? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? Is ours mercenary worship? Where we praise the Lord and serve him only for the good things we can get from him? Is our obedience of God only an exercise in self-love and self-salvation? Are we only in it for what we get out of it? How would your motives stack up? How do mine? It's easy to say we trust God when things are going well. It's when the blessings are not there that it is seen whether we really worship God simply because he is God. It's amazing how many people can never find time to pray. I'm just so busy, I can never find time to pray. It's amazing how many people struggle with how to pray. Oh, I don't know how to pray. Please don't make me do it. Please don't put me on the spot. I just don't know how to pray. It's amazing how people never find time to pray. It's amazing how people just never know how to pray when everything is going smoothly in their life. But suddenly prayer isn't so hard. Suddenly we're not too busy to pray when we want something, when we lack something. All of a sudden, getting down on our knees is not a problem. All of a sudden, talking to God, oh, we can talk. 
We got things to say. My friends, there is a seismic difference, and Joseph blows it up for us. There is a seismic difference between external piety, seismic difference between praying before meals or bed, doing a little devotional now and then, showing up to church once in a while, putting something in the offering plate, and on your way out, grabbing a pinch of bread and a sip of wine at the altar. There is a seismic difference between what I'm going to call religiosity and an internal connection, a living relationship of mind and heart, of a life lived in full devotion to knowing and following Jesus. And the gap between the two, and we all struggle with the gap between the two, that gap between going through the motions of faith versus actually listening, speaking, serving, and representing Christ, the gap between those two is the distance that keeps us from experiencing intimacy with God the peace and security in him that we should, that he offers to us. Let's push this further. Do we live for our father out of gratitude or out of expectation? Is it quid pro quo in our relationship with the Lord? You know, you scratch my back and I'll worship yours. Do we enjoy Jesus for who he is? Or is the only reason we have anything to do with Jesus because he's our golden ticket to getting out of jail free and pass and go into eternal life? What I'm getting at in pushing this a little bit further is we always ask, why do bad things happen? But do we ever ask, why do good things happen? Job, and I intentionally didn't read this from chapter 2, Job, in responding to his wife's foolish talk, makes this statement. Hear it. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job is making the same point. We ask, why do bad things happen? Do we ever ask, why do good things happen? We get hurt when things don't go our way, right? We, you and I, we get hurt when things don't go our way. When we perceive the Lord is telling us no to something we want, we become outraged. We become indignant. When our Father takes something away from us or allows something bad to happen to us, we have no problem saying, how dare you act that way? How dare you do that to me? How dare you allow that to happen? Frustrated, fuming, maybe even beside ourselves, we challenge the goodness of God. But when things go our way, when everything is good, when the sun is shining down on us, when our health is great, as the blessings flow, are we equally shocked and surprised? Do we question it? I woke up this morning. Oh my gosh. I'm breathing. This is amazing. Look at all. Wow. Do we question the good things? Why not? Do we spend as much time counting our blessings as we do keeping score of all the ways the Lord has let us down? Do we engage as much thought, emotion, and energy in praising the Lord as we do complaining and being indignant with him? Do we engage God with gratitude or do we take our Father for granted? Why do we presume that such things, any blessings are ours. Show me in this book where it says that. We deserve it. We're owed it. We had an agreement. 
Did you ever ask yourself? We, 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 uh, something doesn't come. We are outraged. We are upset. We are mad because we presume it ought to be. Where does that come from? Where, 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 did, where is that? Some of you, this, may be, this whole line of conversation may be really ticking you off right now. So let me give you another way to think about this, to help you to enter into, get beyond the emotion of it, and to get into what I'm, what I'm trying to help us to see that Job is reflecting. I want you right now to think of any meaningful, close relationship you have. I want you to think about someone you love. Picture that person in your mind. You love that person. And that love is reciprocal, right? They love you back. But as you're picturing that person, I want you to now imagine, what if your circumstances, your personal circumstances changed and you lost everything? Your home, your wealth, maybe even your health, whatever. You lost everything. You lost something significant and that person suddenly distanced him or herself from you. Eventually cutting off all relationship with you. How would you feel? Wouldn't you feel used? Wouldn't you believe that person was only in relationship with you, only loved you for the benefits of the relationship, for what you could give him or her rather than loving you for yourself? And the reality is, if we're really honest, all of our relationships start like that. All of our relationships begin this way. I mean, think about it. What initially attracts us to another person on all levels? What initially attracts us to another person? The answer is what attracts us is what we're looking for, right? What we desire. Their looks, their influence, their knowledge, their connections. But what we also know is that any relationship, any love formed in a relationship on that basis of attraction, if that's all it is, if that's where it stays, it won't last. That love will prove shallow, right? It's only as the relationship progresses. It's only as the relationship is tested. Tested not just in theory, but being worked out in practice. We face challenges together. We endure hardship together. We suffer losses together. You work through all of that together, and then you begin to love the other person for who they are, not for what they have or for what they offer you. I mean, (laughs) the best crucible of this is marriage, right? You know, I, I do premarital counseling, and man, two, I've told you this before. A young couple gets together, and they're like, I love you, and I love you. And they're going to get married, and they take the vows, and they're up there, and they mean it, man. They mean it. I'm not undermining this at all. They mean it, right? But what I will always say is weddings are easy. Marriage is hard. You, I got some people in the room who know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, they meant it. They meant it, but however much they are in love with each other in that moment, the day after the wedding, the marriage begins. The real work of learning to live together, where romantic dreams, whatever they are, become the reality of daily doing. And that's why at our 10th, 15th, 20th, 25th, we're renewing the vows, we're a little bit weathered, right? We actually maybe look a little bit like each other, because we've been through stuff, right? Re-renew our vows, and now it's like richer or poor. Oh, yeah, I got some stories for you. In sickness and in health, let's talk. Yeah, right. <laughs> Beloved, a relationship with God, for God's sake, is the only kind of relationship that will save us. A relationship with God, for God's sake, is the only 
kind of relationship that will save us. It's the kind of relationship that God wants. It's the kind of relationship that God offers. But you ask yourself, how do we develop a relationship like that with the Lord? Because, of course, his love and devotion to us are perfect. So how do we, how can we grow in our love for God so that our relationship to him is not based on what he does or does not provide for us, but our devotion to him comes out of being increasingly satisfied with himself, himself to us. And the first thing to realize is that all these questions that I've raised previously, these aren't questions that God asks us. These aren't even questions that God asks Job. Notice that. These are questions we ask ourselves. God believes in Job. Maybe a hard way of seeing this, but God says, yup, I believe in my relationship with Job. And God believes in his relationship with us. And how do we know this? As we ask this question, how do we love God like that? Because the answer isn't, we've got to figure it out. We've got to muster up this love ourselves. We've got to, you know, have some, some other relationships and that'll help us to really have the big one. No, the good news, the gospel is First, we receive this perfect love from our Father. The way that we, ex- we gain this kind of love is first we have to receive it. And for many of you here today, that's an important word because for many of you, you are still standing on the precipice of that relationship with God. That religiosity I talked about, you're still quid pro quo with God when God is saying, look man, this isn't about the stuff you do for me. Look, that's great. I love what you put in the offering plate. Man, it's so cool you showed up to church this morning. That daily devotional you went through, man, was that as good for you as it was for me? Great. But that's doing nothing for me. I'm complete. I'm perfect. You're not bringing anything to me. I want to bring stuff to you. And in order for that to happen, you got to stop chasing your tail and just going through the motions, and you got to let me love you. You have to receive the relationship I want to have with you. And the good news is God gives us this perfect love from our Father and it's love offered to us through Jesus Christ. It's this love that he gives us through his life, death, and resurrection. And we receive this love of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we receive first this love of God, how do we gain this kind of a love? How do we change? How does the relationship with God get changed? Because this is beautiful. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit, through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us we learn how to grow in this love. The Spirit teaches us. We learn how to grow in this love and how to give it back to Him and to share it with others. And how does that kind of fruit take root and cultivate in our lives? It's just like any other relationship. By going through stuff with God. By going through stuff with God. And that means challenges. That means hardships. And yes, that even means suffering. For the things we go through with God reveal the nature of our relationship with and our love for God. It reveals where and in what it's based. It reveals how deep that relationship really runs. But here's the thing, more than revealing our relationship to God, hardship, suffering, challenges, going through stuff with God can mature and strengthen our relationship with God. (sighs) I I like words, you know that. I can't put into words how much I have asked myself every day this week, what the heck was I thinking preaching on this book? (sighs) Because, and I'm always with you, I'm never preaching at you, I'm always sitting there with you, this may sound weird to you, but I can always see myself sitting right next to Henry right there. But man, 
It's like an out-of-body experience. I'm like of two minds today. I am speaking, and yet at the same time I'm listening. And if you think you're wrestling, (laughs) welcome to me. For the last five days, and it's going to be the next couple of weeks, this is where we're going to be. And I want you to hear something. And I, I don't say this lightly. If we're here, if we've come If we believe God's job, his purpose is simply to make us happy, this book is going to blow up that presumption. This book is going to challenge that assumption. There is a deeper work the Lord seeks to do in our lives. And it is to grow us into the fullness and the glory of the persons we were created to be. Not who we are either in our daily blessings or brokenness, but who we are destined to become perfected, completed, whole, eternal in Christ. My friends, our relationship with God may once have started out of looking to be forgiven and saved, but our relationship with God can become loving and serving him simply out of pure joy, the pure joy of knowing him, trusting that he knows us, that he is with us and for us. This is the kind of relationship that God offers us. Do we serve God for nothing? Is this love that he offers us, his love for us, the love that we have, the love that we're learning, the love that we're growing in towards God? Or my friends, are we still sitting here operating out of the broken, fickle, conditional love derived from our sin? Because if that's the only love you know, it's not gonna get you very far. In this book of Job, You know why this book is hard? (laughs) Especially for pastors and preachers like John and me, let alone people who haven't been to seminary, is because in the book of Job, theology, all the thoughts we have about who God is and how God works and how God relates to us and we relate to God, because in this book, our theology comes crashing painfully into our everyday experience. This book reflects a life we know. A life that even in my announcements I refer to that life in this world is not removed from struggle and from pain. We all experience suffering. And one of the things that I'm holding on to that I'm just so painfully aware of is I know as I preach through this sermon series that some of us here today may be in the throes right now of that valley of darkness. Right now, some of you may be sitting here today and things have been said or done to you for which I can offer no justification, nor would I try. All I can, all I do, is to point to the integrity today of Job's faith. And more importantly, down the road as we continue more significantly to the, to the God he puts his faith in. Job's got a long way to go, trust me. But his initial response to his suffering speaks to us in the midst of our struggles and our grief. His response, don't misunderstand it, his response isn't a stoic, k-sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be kind of attitude. Job's reply to his wife isn't, well, whatever happens, happens. 
it's just luck or fate or chance. We'll deal with it. No. What Job expresses here is a firm, passionate, and unwavering faith in the presence and the work of God. Job will not let God off the hook. Don't worry. Job's not going to let God off the hook for all the inexplicable suffering that so often shadows, the, shadows this world. But what you're going to also see is, as hard, and it's going to be challenging, it's going to be hard, Job will not let go of God. He will continue to recognize the Lord's sovereignty and presence, both in giving and in taking, and he will bless the Lord either way. You know, in fact, in these first two chapters, his initial response, and this response that's in these first two chapters for me is what grounds him through what is still to come. Job's response here, it makes me think of what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4. Do you remember it? When Paul writes in the midst of his own challenges and sufferings, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. Plenty or hungry, abundance or in need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So we begin. And as we sit with Job through all of this and honestly confront the world we live in, once again, this story isn't going to answer our question of why. But inevitably, it will point us to who. To the God who takes responsibility for our suffering to the God who shows up to answer Job, to the God who shows up to answer us all, our hard questions, our painful reality, taking it all, going so far as to embrace all of our suffering, all the world's evil, firsthand upon himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And to be honest, that's the only way we can read the book of Job. Through the light of the cross, through the promise of the resurrection, looking ahead to the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.